1: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
2: Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombus, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
3: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. Jay.
0: And
2: I'm Pros the Sandman putting you to sleep every week. And this week,
3: we've decided to do something that will probably keep you up a little bit later, despite the Sandman's soothing voice. Despite
2: my best efforts.
3: (laughs) We are joined by a very special guest for a week on tactical medicine. So, why don't we meet Mr. DiGiorgio?
0: Hey, guys. Thank you for having me on board. Uh, For those that don't know me, my name is Rafael DiGiorgio. I've been somebody involved in tactical medicine since about roughly late 1998 and currently have a book out that addresses all what people need to know to run an effective tactical medicine program, and also for the individual responders to understand both, not just the medical side, but the legal considerations for it.
3: I have to admit, when I first approached you, I was very new to what tactical medicine is. So can you give us a little bit of information as to what is tactical medicine? How how does it come into play?
0: Okay, yeah. uh, tactical medicine is basically born and derived from the military, I guess if you want to say the military model. Since basically 1998 when we had the big Bank of America shootout in Hollywood, and they learned that we weren't pushing medics in with tactical teams effectively. And so we had officers that historically would not get medical care until the police department declared the scene safe sort of like the fire service has to declare the fire ground safe before anybody else arson investigators and stuff can go in and look at structures or commercial buildings that are burned out well with the advent of the unfortunately active shooter scenarios mass casualty events like Boston bombing we've learned from the military set that we can send medics into there but they have to be Prepared not just medically, but have to be able to work within that diagram of the tactical side, how to interact with the law enforcement. They've been doing it for decades with the fire service,
2: Hmm. but
0: the tactical medicine in the military set, medics are first and foremost medics, but they are trained on whatever unit they are with, whether it be infantry, military police, special operations forces, so that they can do that job first and foremost, and then the medicine comes after all the dynamics challenges have been addressed and that's something that the law enforcement side of the house has now learned to embrace Oh, really since maybe the columbine shooting and we have to have medical practitioners that can go in but without them knowing the law enforcement side they become an impedance and not to mention you take the chance of getting paramedics emts even nurses and doctors injured if they don't know how to work in that dynamic environment
3: yeah i imagine working in an active shooter environment or a military environment probably is a whole additional levels of stress that you don't see in even a regular medical setting i know from military friends that the biggest proportion of of deaths in soldiers usually deals with hemorrhage either hemorrhage from extremity wounds or where a junctional hemorrhage where an armored leg joins the torso or a groin hemorrhage and then a few other smaller things like gunshot wounds and and lung problems so what are some of the injuries that come up in these tactical situations supporting law enforcement
0: you're going to hear a term in the tactical medicine field called tcc tactical combat casualty care and that was the first and foremost granddaddy of it all and that was a study that was done by the Department of Defense and most of the tactical medicine up until a few years ago was predicated on that because obviously 15 years of warfare has taught us a lot about what we call the reversible wounding or mechanisms of injuries and what we could do to do that and that led to an algorithm which is called MARCH and MARCH was the top reversible causes of death and M being massive hemorrhage, A being airway R standing for respiration, C for circulation issues, and then H was for hypo and hyperthermia, and now we've also included head or neurological exams. And that changed from the civilian version of the ABCs that we've all been taught for decades.
2: You know, I have to say, this is all very interesting to me, particularly because you know, I'm an anesthesiologist, but I also did a year-long ICU fellowship and actually spent a year in a large trauma center where we regularly see a lot of these reversible causes of death that you described. But I mean, being in a trauma bay is very different. We can easily recover like massive hemorrhage by starting massive transfusion protocols, have airway equipment put in tubes, but I imagine none of this equipment would probably be available on the field in an active active shooting environment for example. So for me to even imagine how you'd even begin to reverse these in real time is very
0: fascinating to me. You know, and it's made us revisit some of the older technologies that have been in place like, I mean, tourniquets we've been using since the Napoleonic Wars, but you know, in true fashion, commercialized fashion, once you paint them black and add Velcro to them, they become tactical tourniquets. Mm
3: -hmm. is that how you make something tactical? You paint it black and add Velcro?
0: Uh, unfortunately, yes, for a lot of people. <laughs> and, of course, correspondingly, the commercial price goes up. But, you know, that's the, geez, somewhere in the estimations of $18 million a year industry is just the tourniquets themselves, believe it or not. And, obviously, some of the background you'll find from me delving into the online presence is that I'm a huge advocate of, yes, using tourniquets early and judiciously, but also some of the problems I have, and I'm not going to get off on a tangent, but is that we have roughly 1.3 million police officers in the United States, but most of them, especially you get in places like East Tennessee, Arkansas, Midwest, they don't make enough money to buy a $175, $200 individual first aid kit aren't afforded the same opportunities and equipment that has been around for hundreds of years because of that artificial market inflation of the price. Because at the end of the day, anatomy and physiology really hasn't changed all that much in 200 years. You know, a tourniquet is still a tourniquet. Due to the fact like we alluded to earlier about it, once you paint it black and add Velcro and call it a tactical anything, the price stays artificially high. And that's one of the things I've been... Pushing as far as my, uh, I guess if you want to say my agenda in this industry, has been that a little bit of knowledge goes a long way, and you don't necessarily have to have a thirty-dollar tourniquet when maybe a ten-dollar tourniquet will work if you understand how to occlude or stop the bleeding. Sure, and, and that leads us full circle to what you said earlier about how to address these issues in the field. Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, a tactical medic really does have a unique scenario in front of them because you're only going to be able to treat those patients, whether they are good guys or bad guys, we still have to treat them. And you're only going to be able to treat them with the equipment you carried into a situation. So we don't, sure. even more so than the regular ambulance, we don't have that 300 400 thousand dollar ambulance with a basically a mobile er in the back and if you're in a building that's being cleared or in a shopping center that's under a current tactical environment or even something like the boston bombing i mean you can't carry enough equipment on your back to address it the biggest difference i would say between tactical medicine and regular medicine is you have to change the priority of the triage And you have to be realistic in who you can and can't save, as opposed to, like you said, if I take the same individual and transport them to a level one trauma center, well, then we're throwing everything to include the kitchen sink at them. Sure. We can't do that on the side of the road or in the middle of an environment. So that's where some of these lessons learned have had to be taken hard and fast. Mm -hmm. And, of course, since that breaks the standard scope of practice and the protocols, that most of us have come up with in, if you want to call it civilian or clinical medicine, that's where we start to run into some of these legal issues. It's like, okay, how do we make that decision? How do I, as a licensed paramedic, put a tourniquet on somebody and then walk away from them to go work on somebody else without giving them a proper handoff and not get charged for abandonment of a patient?
2: Yeah, I never even thought about that. I just, it's a very good point.
3: Let's, let's learn a little bit about your background. I mean, it, I know it could take all day to cover everywhere you've been and everything you've done, but tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you come to this world of tactical medicine to begin with, and you know, why is it a special interest for you?
0: Well, uh, for me, early on, when I got out of high school, I joined the military. In you know, ancient history, I was in during Operation Just Cause and Desert Shield Storm. And at that time, I wasn't a medic, and, but I had come or become very comfortable with having medics everywhere we went you know there was never a medic too far away because a standard protocol in the US military is any kind of hostile action there's always a medic with the squad that goes and does that particular action any high stress and high risk or high incidents for any kind of problems we're always going to have a medic whether it's peacetime training or whether it's actual war wartime and then when I got out I became a police officer started out in New Jersey uh, ended up transferring to Arkansas and when I was in New Jersey was when I started looking into it, and to be quite is just because I was kind of shocked at the fact that we had such a limited medical response. One of the things was I wanted to get on a SWAT team, and um, they just didn't have enough medics. And this was when that whole surge started to happen mid to late 90s. And I, I looked at it as, okay, well, there's something I had a propensity for. Why not get some more training and increase my odds of getting on a SWAT team Then after The Bank of America robbery in 99, the uh, light went off. But then I was by that time working in Arkansas and started to continue on with some of my first aid training, then realized how woefully inadequate that was. And I've always believed that, you know, yes, first aid is great, but it doesn't give you enough in-depth knowledge of the A&P, the mechanisms of injuries to actually make a substantial difference Then, after 9-11, I went and worked in Alaska on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline of Search and Rescue. And I started to understand more, not just of the tactical set, but also the remote medicine. That I guess we could save that for another day. But that led me to about 2004, and I wanted to get my paramedic, which I did. Went through Texas A&M, got my paramedic license, and almost immediately I was solicited to start working overseas in 05, as a medic on protection security details overseas and that really got me more and more interested but in the interim I always stayed and kept affiliated with several different law enforcement agencies as a part-time or what you call reserve police officer and the more I started to see the bleeding in of lessons learned overseas into the stateside medicine while they absolutely validate themselves there is also the part that always scared me as the ex-cop and somebody who studied criminal justice. I was worried about, okay, once we start deviating from the scope of practice, we we put ourselves out there. I mean, any time, and I mean, even in the ERs, we have, at the end of the day, there is standard operating procedures, protocols that are going to be followed. And any time you deviate from those, you like to believe you're going to come out a hero, but... A lawyer may look at it differently and so that was one of the things i started to get nervous about because we haven't even thought about discussing some of the other avenues that i'm sure we will during this conversation but things along the lines of okay i walk through the door i'm a police officer who's a paramedic or i'm a paramedic who's working with a swat team so maybe i'm a reserve police officer and i started to get into that ambiguous gray area of okay which one am i first and is it covered under HIPAA or is it covered under plain view for search and seizures and how does that work how do i interview a patient and do i address it as a police officer or a paramedic
3: sure because we you know we always instantly think here in america we default to the good samaritan law but that doesn't cover everything and and one of the perfect examples of this in your book legal considerations for tactical medical responders you talk about the Pixar movie The Incredibles and Praz I don't know if you if you remember The Incredibles but it opens with like this fantastic scene from Mr. Incredible who's you know invincible in almost every way and leaps through this plate glass window rescuing a guy who's about to fall and lands and sets him down he's like you're welcome citizen and then the guy turns around and sues Mr. Incredible for ruining his suicide attempt and getting him in a cervical collar and this starts everybody suing superheroes and then the whole city just decides to shut the program down Mm -hmm. and send the superheroes into hiding and I always (laughs) thought that was a very interesting take by Pixar as to you know the legal liability of helping what you're saying Rafael is that Basically, this is the same kind of thing that we have now in that you can't really be sure who you're helping and the Good Samaritan law may not always cover you depending on what hat you're wearing.
0: First of all, let's go ahead for some of the uh, listeners that may not know. There is no universal Good Samaritan law. Every state has their own variation on it. I mean, a lot of people thought there were or, or under the misbelief that there's a federal Good Samaritan law and there is no such thing. So then you start going into each state And you have to figure out what exactly is the requirement, not the requirement. I mean, you go to some extremes like Alaska, where it is in their DMV or their division of motor vehicles and in their code that if you see a stranded vehicle, you have a requirement to stop. Now, it doesn't mean you have to administer medical aid, but they don't, because of the remoteness of Alaska, they don't want people to just nonchalantly drive by people and not offer aid or at least be able to help somebody out keep them from freezing or whatever extremes on the side of the road uh we just had a case a few years back in california where a uh two girlfriends were in the car together uh there was a motor vehicle accident uh the driver was rendered unable to rescue themselves or to self-extract out of this situation the passenger Meaning well, but did not understand that, you know, steam tends to come out of hoods and stuff like that. But, you know, the typical too much Hollywood stuff thought the car was going to explode, removes the driver from the car. Unfortunately, doesn't do a good job of it. The driver is paralyzed. She was sued because the California courts at that time ruled that the Good Samaritan law only covers the medical uh, techniques or interventions and not the rescue. Hmm.
3: So we could have treated him for burns in the car if it caught on fire, but not protected against taking him out of the car. Right.
0: Hmm. Wow. That's. um... Now they've revised that law since then. But again, this is one of those things. I mean, now you have two lifelong friends that are no longer lifelong friends. You have somebody who is permanently injured and another person who's permanently financially ruined. From believing that, hey, I'll do the right thing. What's the worst that could happen?
3: (laughs) Always a dangerous question to ask.
2: Yeah, I I feel like this prevents a lot of people from stepping in in certain situations, you know.
0: Um, It it does to an extent. and, And the thing is also, people are kind of riding that line where it's... You know, I have a phrase I use often in some of my speaking engagements. I say everybody wants to be a SWAT cop, but nobody wants to go to a basic law enforcement academy. We have a lot of people that want to be tact medics and will solicit us, and then the next thing they ask is, or we'll ask them is, okay, well, what level of certification are you at now? Oh, I don't have any. So how do you want to be a tactical medicine or a medic if you're not even a medic to begin with? Hmm. So,
3: and I think another example that you gave is, let's say you have a, a tactical medical responder with some basic emergency medical training, and they give care that, we'll say, exceeds the scope of the training. So, you show up, and you know to stop the bleeding, you have to apply pressure in an active shooter situation, all right? You put pressure on the wound, you stop the bleeding, but it's not, it needs to be sutured. So... There's no one else around, do does the person without this training try and stitch the person up or do they let it be with the risk that the person may bleed out? I mean, we always hear about do no harm, which is very easy in a hospital setting which is a controlled lab, but out in the field, how how does this work?
0: Exactly. And and, and you know some of the things that come into play there is again depending on the state you're in and your scope of practice, your licensure your because uh, there's places and here comes the most craziest part is like let's say i was not a paramedic at all i I let my my license lapse and i go out in a remote wilderness i'm out with a party and things go terribly awry okay and i find myself in that exact situation where i need to suture somebody i actually am afforded better protection in that scenario than i am with my paramedic license, because at that scenario, I'm I'm actually working as a good Samaritan.
1: Hmm. But
0: if I was in a paramedic role, and depending on the state I'm in, some paramedics don't have the ability to suture, now I've exceeded the scope of my practice. You know, it's kind of that catch-22 is, if I don't have a license, well, then you can't really revoke my license, can you? (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I've had some interesting phone calls in that respect because people are like, well, do I keep my license or not? And I go, well, it depends. Is your license something that you're able to make an occupation and a a, a career out of? Because, you know, one of the big other fields that I tend to teach and lecture in is executive protection. And a lot more people are looking for that medical awareness in that uh, that field you know on the security team for high net worth individuals and what I get a lot of is I'll get people who are paramedics maybe part time or even full time paramedics with an ambulance service or a public service agency and then they'll be like oh well I'm working part time on the weekend and I'm a medic on this detail and you know of course my question is okay well now since medics, nurse practitioners PAs are all physician extenders I'm like well who's your physician sponsor oh well, I don't have one Okay, well then now you're soliciting beyond your scope of practice because you know you can't I can't go out as a medic and sell my services without having either either part of an ambulance service or a medical service. And so a lot of people were running into that and a lot of these executive protection companies were soliciting me and saying, Hey, how do we build up a proper medical program? And it's like, well first you need a doctor somewhere in the chain of command, you need a doctor. <laughs> yeah and, you know and you need protocols and you need sop then i was getting the same from public service agencies like police departments sheriff's departments hey we want to start a tactical medicine program we got a couple of guys that are emts with the you know res- volunteer emergency squad or the uh amr or some some private and they're like we're going to put them as a reserve officer and put them on our squad team and i'm like okay that's great but is their physician sponsor from those outside entities going to cover them on that and you know and will the county insurance cover them for doing medical on your behalf and it's got to be such a reoccurring theme that honestly that was the motivation for writing the book because i was fielding so many of those calls that i was like okay well you know what if it's the same questions why not put it in a book where i'm not fielding 20 30 calls a month trying to just get people to understand the basic scope of it before they even start spending money on training on equipment on uh, some a lot of co- agencies private and public didn't even realize the insurance requirements for malpractice.
3: Now let me ask just just for a few definitions here when you're talking about physician sponsor you mean basically somewhere in the chain of command there needs to be a doctor with whom the buck stops somebody who is saying yes i will sign off on whatever treatments you're giving or is up to date with the research and when you're talking about executive protection are these like bodyguard details that we see in you know the hollywood movies where you've got several i don't know assorted mercenaries and then one of them happens to be a medic what is what are the scope in which this is used is it just swat
0: the executive protection i'm referring to yes they are normally in most states they're licensed private security companies or private investigation companies depending on the state you're in and they provide security for these high net worth individuals the bill gates of the world that kind of stuff and some of the lesser known but still high net worth families and a lot of These private security companies over the last couple of decades have found that, you know, by offering first aid that they had first aid qualified individuals to present a better and more professional appearance. Some of these people are now taking this to further extremes. You know, they had the house in the middle of Montana and stuff like that. They want somebody with more medical training for special needs, family members, for the geriatric crowd hey you know we have somebody who's a high net worth individual but he has a heart heart condition can we bring a security person along who's also a paramedic or a nurse to help in case of a medical emergency while in this remote location and it sounded like a great concept and one of a lot of the personal managers for these people will be like well if we can get a security person who is also a medical practitioner well now we can hire one person instead of two and it worked for years except for the fact that people didn't realize that as a paramedic i can't go out and just put a shingle up and say paramedic for hire and not have a legitimate agency behind me or a business that has as you said a doctor where the buck stops because at the end of the day i can't practice paramedicine without having physician sponsorship
2: So when you have physician sponsors, does this have to be somebody with some background in trauma or acute care? or could be any licensed physician.
3: Could an OB-GYN be the head of
0: your security detail? I would hope not. I mean, uh, to be quite honest, unless you're doing protection for somebody who's in their third trimester, then it could be possible. And then again, they may not be a security person. They may be more of a private medical escort, if you want to call it that. But even there, let's take nursing, for example. Most states have what we call traveling nurses, but they usually work for an agency, and that agency has a physician sponsor somewhere in it. Whether they are doing dialysis or any other occupational health, but you can't just hire a nurse without having a doctor who's going to sign off on him or her. And it's the same here. Now, normally for these security details, and especially for the law enforcement details, you would want a medic... That had some kind of tactical back, because at the end of the day, they're going to be a hindrance if they try to get involved in security operations.
3: In addition to security details, you said you've worked in military, you've worked in law enforcement. I know in the last 10 years, there have been a couple major shifts in SWAT doctrine and law enforcement. One is focused on aggressively going after active shooters with whatever assets happen to be on hand instead of maybe waiting for a SWAT team because there's just not that many SWAT people. The second, and that's the one you've been kind of telling us about, has been to recognize the need for emergency medical contingency planning, which includes training officers and agents in the basics of self-care and buddy care with a focus on bleeding control, which is what they learned from the military. But within, say, a tactical unit or a or a SWAT unit or even just a law enforcement unit how is this organized who who's the chain of command because police also have a chain of command in some way similar to a military correct correct
0: and that is So how is this organized? It's so variable depending on if it's a regional SWAT team a a somebody like a NYPD who has the resources to have their own in-house medical directors and stuff but the way it works is okay if I'm on a county sheriff's department I would still answer to the tactical commander, whether whoever that may be, on the SWAT command. I would still have that law enforcement chain of command. And the the funny thing about it is, again, going back to the uh, previous example I gave you, it depends on who is your first time, your your primary employer. If I'm a full time SWAT or a full time deputy sheriff, my first chain of command is obviously going to be that law enforcement chain. Now when it comes to medical, since I'm wearing two hats, tactically I answer everything to the law enforcement side and medically I'd still have to answer to the medical director side. Now, most places that have this have, hopefully they have a medical director who's working in in concert with the law enforcement side, but that's not always the case. And we've had really well-intentioned, even doctors, that are now like, hey, you know, I'm the local urgent care doctor, I'm in a county of 8,000, and I'm going to sponsor the SWAT team's medics. Well, that's great. But if they haven't had prior military or prior law enforcement experience, they're still basing their protocols on what they know to be true from the emergency room aspect and not necessarily from the tactical environment. The National Association of EMTs, who uh, jumped on board very quick, and they're the premier one in the space that offers the TCCC triple c courses the tactical combat casualty care courses but then you go delve into this a little deeper and you find that to be a tactical combat casualty care instructor with them they require no prior military or law enforcement experience and so that has flooded the market with people who have gone to a two to three day tactical medicine course and now they're they're said to be tactical medics but there's no guarantee that the person that taught them even has the tactical background
3: so one of the few programs i i saw when researching this was there's the international school of tactical medicine offers a two-week intensive program aimed at medical practitioners so let's say ros or myself wanted to become part of these SWAT details and they give us basic training on law enforcement operations and how to work within a law enforcement team as the medic. Is this a program that is good? Is this one of these University of Phoenix online programs?
0: I've never been through that course so full full transparency on that but I did contribute to the book The Essentials of Tactical Medicine. The problem there is I know that that one has been regionally accredited and accepted through California Post, which is the Police Officer Standard and Training Council, and so that means that the Law Enforcement Section for California has approved that course. You know, I would say that would be almost the bare minimum, would be at least two weeks so that somebody understands the subtleties of how to work in a SWAT stack, versus like you mentioned earlier. Okay, we're going to get the first two to four officers that respond to this scene, and we're going to move in and try to eliminate the threat and possibly treat people along the way. That, to me, is one of those deals where it has to be at least that long just to get a basic understanding, and then you have to go back to whatever host agency you actually work for and work with and understand what their standard operating procedures are going to be for their active shooter response, for barricaded subject, for hostages basically a terrorist event and a lot of these schools aren't teaching that aspect it's caused serious heartburn for me because they've done a disservice to the whole profession and occupation because again nobody's taking the time to teach these new medics about like like we saw in the boston bombing okay great first bomb went off where IED, improvised explosive device and basically it channeled hundreds of people into a fatal funnel and then the second IED went off. And we're seeing more and more of that. You know, the LA Times had a scathing report after that where they talked about how the uh, hospital out there, a couple of doctors had come through and they were the tactical medicine response. But they didn't coordinate enough with law enforcement and put enough forethought into their response that it took them 30 to 45 minutes just to get through the police checkpoints on the way to the mass casualty event. And, and so it's like, okay, it's great. You know, and I understand a lot of doctors, a lot of medics want to get into this and they want to be the TAC med and they, they do it for all the right reasons. But without proper planning, without clear and concise protocols in place ahead of time, they're just, they're rolling the dice and ho- and hoping they don't get sued because of this mythical Good Samaritan. You know, because the other problem with that is most of the Good Samaritan laws require that you don't expect payment so if you're on a SWAT team and you are back to your original contention a a full-time fully sworn law enforcement officer who has a duty to act and if you're collecting any kind of pay or extra incentives because you're also the team medic good samaritan doesn't cover you anymore yeah i hate to be a bummer so let's say
2: obviously you want to pick the people who are best suited to handle these situations and you, like you said a lot of people do like go into this with good knowledge and maybe for all the right reasons but they go in with like, a weekend or a two-week bare minimum course that really doesn't begin to scratch the surface so an ideal candidate for this kind of position what kind of training would they have
0: and Like where would they be able to get it? Would they have to go to school or would they have to... Honestly, I would say one of the best programs in the United States is the Maryland State Police. They require you to be a paramedic before you even apply. Then you go through and you actually go through a state police academy. You become a fully-fledged and operational state policeman or state trooper. And after your, I believe it's two or three years, you get over your probationary period and you're allowed to apply. Then you apply for their medical... And it, it, it's a well-funded program. It, it has clear and concise right and left lateral limits. And it has all of the protocols in advance up in place. And, and that's the thing. It's not that I'm trying to talk people out of having a TACMED program. Sure. But there's, there's some agencies that just aren't going to be able to afford it. And that's that slippery slope that a lot of them are at. They're like, okay, well, you know, everybody else around us, all the neighboring uh, agencies have one, so we need a TACMED. In a great and a proper world, you would have every officer in the United States would at least know self-aid, buddy aid, and they would have a course that wasn't going to break the bank for these agencies, but would allow them to have that fundamental knowledge—the same knowledge that we give every soldier in the military. We used to call combat lifesavers course. Now it's, uh, I believe, uh, warriors first aid course, but it's. One of those deals where there's no reason we shouldn't be able to do that, but unfortunately, once you get involved with product endorsements and you get involved with curriculum and for-profit agencies, they've made it such an astronomical price tag that officers either can't afford the tuition to the course or they can't afford the equipment to sustain it once they get out. Honestly, I tend to believe, and I know some people are going to get mad about this, you should have at least a paramedic, if not higher. I think that you know, just like most ambulance services, the senior person on the uh, ambulance is a paramedic. I think that's the way it should be in the tactical medicine community because, again, if you don't un- if you don't have that understanding of the pharmacology, the anatomy and physiology, the mechanisms of injury, and especially once we get into battlefield injuries or tactical environment injuries, yeah, you know, a gunshot's a gunshot. I understand that, but a gunshot and I'm going to put them on the back of an ambulance and get them to an ER in 15 minutes. Different modality of treatment than a gunshot, and I may be hiding in a closet for the next 45 minutes to an hour and a half while the SWAT team secures 40,000 square feet of this mall.
3: Scope of training is is really important, and I think you gave one example. Are there any other times when maybe the paramedics would ever be better off tactically not bringing a victim immediately to a hospital. What if if there's a conflict? You're the top medical person, and then there's the top law enforcement person. Who has the final say?
0: And the way we've addressed that overseas on security details at most of the law enforcement agencies is at, at some point in your career path, you have to make a decision. And, you know, because normally the medic will never be the senior officer in charge or even the second officer in charge because of the fact that most of the time we try to avoid putting them in that situation where now you got to make a sound tactical decision and a medical decision they are two different guidelines completely if they're a well-trained medic is going to do a rapid triage and they're going to make a priority list of who's got to go and whether we can stay and treat them in place or whether we got to evacuate them as quickly as possible And they're gonna have to take into account, and this is where I say about medics have to be trained better to be on a tactical team than a two-day course, because now as a medic who's also been a police officer and been in the mill and worked overseas for all these years, when I train tactical medics, I have to train them on to take into accountability, first of all, the survivability of the patient, making sure that no more people get hurt, whether it's the patient, the operators, whether they're law enforcement or security personnel or military. A lot of times, I'm going to have my hands so full with the medical prognosis stuff that I'm going to give that, and that's always going to be the tactical leader's responsibility to tell me what resources are available. But I have to have that fundamental knowledge of knowing, okay, you know, in a perfect world, we've got the helicopter landing zone, we've got state police assets, we can shut down a highway. Well, once we end up in a shopping center, I have to understand what are my available assets and also... Just because I'm a tactical medic doesn't mean the EMS crews that are standing by in the warm zone, they're not going to be able to come to me. And if I don't have a clear route out to them, I may be endangering more people by trying to evacuate a patient. So I may end up having to sit on a patient for longer while they have canines search the premises to make sure there's no secondary explosive devices. A lot of times it's making sure that the exit route isn't compromised by structural damage that could actually injure more people. But that's why we kind of leave those two leadership paths separate.
2: That's um, a lot of variables to take into account. Do you have a systemic way in which you assess an entire situation, including things like survivability, equipment, Where you can assess that within minutes or seconds of being in the field?
0: Yeah, and, and, and it goes against conventional protocols. And that's why, again, it's one of those things where, you know, the medic. It's not that A&P changes, but, you know, I look at, like, that March algorithm I gave you earlier. Did I massive bleeding? Can I correct it? Okay, throw a tourniquet on. Airway, can I clear this airway, or is it beyond repair? You know, because, again, in the tactical environment, I probably won't have time for RSI. And, and depending on what tactical environment in, I may not even have the drugs for RSI.
3: RSI, meaning rapid, rapid sequence intubation. Thank you. Sorry about that.
0: Once we do an intubation, now you married the patient to a backboard. So now you're, you're marrying somebody to them for at least a BVM or the bag valve mask for an airway support. And, and now all of a sudden you can't nothing short of a skeletonized suburban or a proper ambulance are you going to be able to get that patient out of this environment you know those are things that you got to start taking into consideration so who's going to protect me when i go against everything that the state ems licensing board and everybody else has already put out
3: and to learn a little more about how those decisions are made you can also listen to our episode on disaster medicine where we spoke with a coordinator about color codes green mm. yellow red and black it sounds like it's very similar
0: oh absolutely a lot of the lessons learned are very similar and and, and thank you for bringing that up because you know you have the start triage and stuff like that and, and it's phenomenal that's one of those additional skill sets like Pro was asking earlier about Again, brings me to that, like I said before, about everybody wanting to be a SWAT cop. Nobody wanted to go to the basic law enforcement academy. It's the same here. A lot of people want to be tactical medics, but they forget they got to be a medic first and understand the triage side, the anatomy and physiology side, the disaster medicine side. If it was easy on the uh, tactical medicine side, there'd be a lot more people in it. But the problem becomes... When you have to make those hard calls, how do you make that decision? Well, I base it on, well, 27 years of public service, whether it be military, law enforcement. I mean, I wish it was a hard and fast, this is what we're going to do, but it's just not because the safety is so paramount. And it's not like the average safety at a domestic violence call where once the police officers hook up everybody and put them in handcuffs. Okay, now the scene's safe, and I, pretty much the medical aspect comes into the regular, I hate to say routine, but it is pretty routine. No active shooter situation is ever going to be that easy.
3: But I always love words and word origins, and it's a very well-known fact on this show that I get deeply into history and etymology. One of the names I loved in tactical medics is you have a bunch of meatball surgeons hanging around the field, and... Meatball surgeons are named for surgery meant to be performed rapidly to stabilize the patient as quickly as possible. The meatball, of course, being from either the bullet entry wound, which makes the skin and muscle look like ground meat, which your job in stabilizing bleeding is to just get that sauce and ground meat all put together so your spaghetti of nerves and muscle fibers don't come out. And are there any other slang terms that you use in the field?
0: Oh, there is a whole, the I mean, uh, one of the big ones is a gutter medic. You know, basically everything can be fixed with uh, duct tape and paramedic shears.
3: Oh, I uh, wish we had Dr. Ward on with us. He carries his roll of duct tape everywhere. Yeah,
0: and, and you'd be amazed. It works phenomenally. That's just like, I mean, I don't get me wrong. When I have the ability, I love chest seals, especially the ones that have the real good adhesive on them. But overseas, I'll carry a you know, five-inch wooden dial with saran wrap wrapped around it. Because IED blast or shotgun blast with pellets, instead of trying to make a little occlusive dressing for each one of those holes, wrap it in saran wrap, top it off with a little a patch of duct tape, and off you go. Overseas, absolutely understood that can work. Stateside, could you imagine? You bring somebody into an ER and you wrap them like that, and they're going to be like, "What? what is <laughs> that? Where did you so right? learn that? <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> it's literally doing everything you can with the bare minimum. That's pretty awesome.
0: Well, that, and it's also because, you know, if you're working in sub saharan desert, northern Africa, Middle East, you know, all of a sudden you got to start taking into account that bag, that proverbial bag I told you about, the, what we call our aid bag, it's going to sit in roasting hot cars. We're going to do operations at 110, 115 degrees. Almost all the chest seals in the world will start to deteriorate because the gum and the goo just gets problems the same reason we can't carry a lot of the rapid sequence innovation drugs is because they have a very short shelf life when you take them out of refrigeration and start exposing them to extreme temperatures you know and so that's where you've got to understand what you can carry and what you can't carry because at the end of the day I'm a pretty stocky individual but 300 pounds of lightweight stuff is still 300 pounds and I can't do operations and carry all that with me. So you start to become a very big practitioner of alternate uses for everything, you know. Yeah. Until you so use the is... catheter as a stethoscope, you really, you know, you don't really appreciate just how much that saves you on having to carry two things.
3: Yeah. You know what? Tell us a little bit more about your, your MacGyver medicine. What, I- what are some of the strangest things you've had to multipurpose?
0: Uh, well, before everybody came up with a tray cook, We used to use 14 gauges to help with uh, crikes in order to hold that in place, needle.
3: Uh, Okay, so a 14-gauge needle in order to, cricoid, meaning the area of the throat where they will put a needle through to open an airway.
0: Uh, When you do a crike, in the Mm -hmm. field especially, once you make your initial incision, things like to slip around a lot, and then you're going to have to pierce that cricoid membrane, and that's when field medics, we've been doing it for years, where we take a 14-gauge catheter, bend it at about a 45 degree angle and use that as basically a hook to hold everything in place while we insert either a nasal pharyngeal as a semi-permanent airway or even a made normally about 7.5 intubation tube in there. Mm -hmm. And and then we'll remove that 14 gauge. But as you know, when you make that initial incision things tend to slide around a bit. You don't want to lose your landmark.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it's very, it looks so much easier than it actually is, and I got a greater appreciation of that, you know?
0: Here in the States, obviously, everybody would do an OPA or oral pharyngeal airway, or go straight to just holding a good neutral position on the head. If they had to do an emergency airway, it would be rapid sequence intubation, right. or and where people get like, oh my god, he went straight for a crike, because it's the measure of last resort in civilian EMS. Mm-hmm. But in the, in the a store environment or even the tactical environment, the things I'm looking at is one, I can do that with a limited amount of anesthesia Uh, I can even do it, get away with uh, maybe a fentanyl lollipop or local lidocaine and make that fentanyl happen.
3: lollipop. That sounds delightful. Where can I pick up that flavor? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Oh. Yep. <laughs> As I tell people, I'm not a real doctor, but I play one overseas quite a bit.
3: Uh, <laughs> Mr. Owl, how many licks does it take to get to the center of the fentanyl?
0: Oh. <laughs> well, you know, but that's the beauty of it. It's all. It's sort of like the nitrous oxide of old, where, you know, my whole thing with the fentanyl lollipops is it almost it precludes and takes away that worry of. I'm, I'm, is this guy going to overdose on me? Because, you know, you tape it to their finger when they, about the time they start to pass out, that drops out of their mouth, it's still on their finger. They'll wake up. They may use it again. But on a serious note, for the crikes in tactical environment, the biggest reason is, one, normally we have massive facial damage if we're looking at a compromised airway, it's secondary to a gunshot wound to the face, a maybe a motor vehicle accident. Uh, possibly an ied blast and so you have glass teeth everything stuffed down that oral airway and and what we you know trying to attempt that with a tube most of the time ends up in failure because one there's been such a dramatic and violent insult to that airway and two if you try to stick the tube in there and it doesn't work you just pushed all this stuff all this uh, debris towards the galactic airway and it causes a massive amount of damage and now they're going to start swelling up even faster. The other thing is, as I said earlier, you put in the intubation tube, and now you ha- basically you've committed at least one person to keeping this person breathing and two or three people to make a move, and you got to now have resources to move somebody that's on a backboard. If you put a crike in somebody, you actually can still put them in a seat and move them in the back of a Suburban. Or you can sit them in a chopper that's about to push them out. Well, now I can fit four people in a chopper instead of two on backboards. And those are the considerations you have to take into account when you're looking at tactical medicine.
2: As I think back to the trauma intubations that I've seen, and you're right, anytime there's any major upper airway issues, I mean, all rules about last-ditch effort or like trying a conventional intubation first, all that goes right out the window when your first priority is get the airway.
0: Yeah, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, again, when I talk to civilian counterparts, you know, and a lot of medics that have just started into, maybe they've had five, ten years on, an, on a standard EMS, and then they come over to the tactical medicine side, and they're just, they're incredulous about, well, why would you go straight for that? And I go, well, it's where I'm going to end up anyway, so why not do it first and foremost? It's less intensive on the pharmaceuticals I need. So I don't have to be doing medmath in a high-stress situation. Uh, sure, it's less equipment I have to carry, and it's more streamlined for evac- evacuating people. Because again, with you in the anesthesiology, you understand, it's such a fine line there that once I start dropping people with neuromuscular blocks and you know, heavy dose sedatives all of a sudden I can't really I can't pay attention to a whole lot else I've yeah. you know I'm taking this person literally to the brink of death and mm-hmm. the last thing I want to do is screw up a med calculation or miss something because now I'm in a dynamic environment and this person may still have body armor on that needs to stay on because we're still in a tactical environment so I can't necessarily strip them down and have that conduit to understand and to be able to monitor my patient as well as I would in the back of an ambulance or an ER. You know, mm-hmm. And then, or like tourniquets, another fine example is, I mean, we've all been through the first aid courses, and we all remember the old algorithm, you know, put a bandage on it, put another bandage on it, elevate it, pressure point, pressure dressings, and that, that just takes time that in a tactical environment we're not going to have, and that's one of the reasons that... We tend to, uh, back to your meatball surgeon thing, one of the reasons we go, the standard for tourniquet placement in the tactical environment is we don't even open up to examine the wounded area. We will take that tourniquet as high as we can on that, whichever appendage it is and tighten it there because we may have to evacuate this person rather quickly. Nothing's going to be pretty about it. And then when we get to a, a warm zone or a cold zone, we'll reevaluate that wounding pattern and see if we can't relocate that turn and get a little closer to the wound. But again, when you look at the conventional method of two to three fingers above the actual wound, that was great in civilian, but we may not have time to examine each appendage in, a, in the tactical environment. If we see a massive amount of blood loss off any limb, We're just going to go ahead and go as high as we can over their clothing, stop the bleeding, hopefully get them out of that situation and then address it uh, and see what we can do to either replace the tourniquet at a different measure or prioritize who's going to go out first with whatever limited resources we have for evac.
3: So it sounds like sort of the takeaway is one of the main ways tactical medicine is different is your your top priority is in fact prioritization. What has to be done right now in the second to either safely evacuate the person or keep them alive until the situation is controlled and then we can evacuate? Would that be a, a yes. fair assessment or what? what's the most yeah. important part of tactical medicine that you think – if someone comes to your course or they, they read your book and they have small memory or short attention span, what's the most important thing you want them to take away?
0: First and foremost, you are whatever position you're playing. And whether it's you're a law enforcement officer, whether you're on a protective security detail overseas, you know, the first thing in tactical medicine is stopping whatever threat is coming to you. And that's where people get kind of messed You know, one of the big lessons I had to learn when I first got into this was, first, you know, here in the U.S., all medics are pretty, what we call first responders. In tactical medicine, you're first a victim. You're going to be in the insult with whatever you're dealing with, whether it's an active shooter, whether it's an IED blast, whether it's a secondary IED blast. And a lot of people can't get their headspace around that, that you have to understand the techniques, tactics, and procedures for the environment you're going to be in. Because I can be the world's greatest ER physician on a tag team, but if I get wounded in the first five minutes of whatever tactical situation I'm in, I'm worthless to everybody else on the team.
3: And in fact, a liability because now there's no medical right care that may be right. available for all Absolutely. those other
0: people. Yeah, and so that's the biggest thing I have to get through to most of the students is yeah i don't you know especially the students that are medical background and want to take part in this i have to teach them that but then i have another source of population that are the law enforcement officers and stuff and they come from a different but equally valuable background and now i got to teach them that okay great you're a medic, or I mean, excuse me, you're a police officer, you're a soldier, you're a private security contractor overseas, and you have a tremendous tactical background. But now I've got to somehow teach you oh, basically a paramedics course. i got to teach you anatomy and physiology because, you know, the self aid, buddy aid, you know, I'm just teaching them basic life saving interventions. But when you actually carry the term as the tactical medic or senior medic on one of these teams, if you don't understand anatomy and physiology, how do you know the difference between whether this person may need Sudafed or Benadryl for a stuffy nose? Because that's the other part a lot of people get away from is everybody thinks about the tact medicine and the shoot them up, blow them up response. But now the other part to this that I teach, the tactical side which doesn't really get it all the time is as a tech medic, I know my team, I know some of the secrets their wives and husbands don't know and When you see the SWAT teams staged in front of a house and they may be out there for an extended period of time, I mean, sometimes as long as 12 or 14 hours, all of a sudden, knowing how to use a tourniquet isn't as important as do you know the subtleties of dehydration? Do you know that one of your coworkers may be on an antidepressant? and he's coming up on his time that the half-life's about to cut short and he may need to go get if he doesn't have his prescription with him do you know that one of them has sensitivity to bee stings and we're operating in an area that's known for bees And, and that's the less sexy part that a lot of people don't want to get involved in but it really is those two extremes as a tech medic i've got to be able to do I know that, okay, if my guy who happens to be a designated defensive marksman or a sniper on the team, you know, they're usually hold up in a place of higher elevation, they're usually about themselves or with a spotter, and they usually are more in the environment than the guys that are waiting for the, the term to go. Okay, do I understand enough about interstitial uh, fluid loss to be able to say, well, instead of giving him an IV, which is going to third space over the next hour and he's probably going to be back to see me since he's got a patent airway why don't I go ahead and do an oral rehydration salt solution and this way over the next hour he'll actually be better hydrated and can last longer for this operation
3: Hmm. sure and if you don't think at home that knowing some of the smaller details is important for law enforcement let me direct you to the movie demolition man where poor (laughs) sylvester stallone couldn't even figure out the three seashells (laughs) and and you're going to leave people like this who are very last action hero but even the slightest cold can lay you low or the minor medical condition if you're not paying attention so it's really important to know both and it's it's fascinating to hear about these two these two extremes and I, I certainly hope that you'll be able to join us again in the future at some point to talk more oh, about both of these
0: absolutely I would love to I really appreciated you guys having me on you know we've learned a lot but
3: by no means everything about tactical medicine about legal considerations that the good Samaritan law maybe is not as protective as you think it is that it's important to know all the fields That you're in. And just like in any field, we have great uses for duct tape, saran wrap, and MacGyvering our way through. So if you'd like to learn more about any of the things that we've discussed on here today, where can our listeners find you, Raphael?
0: Fortunately, the book is on Amazon. I'll make a shameless plug for that. It's uh, Legal Considerations for Tactical Medicine, with Medical Responders, both individuals and agencies. The easiest place to get a hold of me is GOS911.com. That's our webpage, stands for Global Options and Solutions.
3: You'll be able to find that link to both the contact as well as the book in our show notes if you'd like to learn more about that. If you're in learning more about tactical or disaster medicine, you can listen to this episode repeatedly or to our previous episode on disaster medicine. If you have any other comments, questions, concerns, or you just want to chat with us, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Squarespace, Stitcher, anywhere that you download your podcasts find us, rate us, review us if you'd like to support us emotionally leave us a 5 star rating if you'd like to support us spiritually send us a comment on Facebook Uh and if you'd like to support us financially we do have a Patreon page as low as $1 a month we'll personally thank you by name as low as $5 a month you'll get a whole bonus episode our theme music is composed by Rachel Slee Ledger and now because we've dealt with some pretty heavy stuff the rest of this episode let's close it out with a travel story, Raphael, out of all the many, many places you've traveled, what is one of your most memorable experiences?
0: Oh, honestly, uh, the wife and I, right after 9-11, we moved to Alaska, and we absolutely loved it. Lived up there for four years, and if you have the opportunity, I tell everybody this, you need to visit it twice. Once in the winter, and once in the summer, because they are two completely separate alien landscapes. And uh, Mount Benali was absolutely phenomenal.
3: Fantastic. And any unique things that are in Alaska that you can't see anywhere else? Dog sledding, northern lights, Russia from your
0: window. (laughs) I would say at Chena Hot Springs in the wintertime, the Ice Hotel, phenomenal.
2: Mm -hmm. Nice hotel.
0: Yeah, there's a whole hotel made out of uh, solid ice. In Fairbanks, Alaska, uh, I believe it's February, March, but don't quote me on that. They have an ice sculpture competition that is phenomenal. I mean, it, it takes up I think twenty square acres, and they, before the competitors do their actual ice sculptures, they build a fully functional playground out of ice for kids. Hmm. And it, it's if you get a chance, check it out. I know it's all over the websites and stuff. You'd be amazed at some of the sculptures and stuff they do, but it's just phenomenal when it comes to how interactive it is for kids and adults.
3: All right. So, an ice playground in Alaska. Who wouldn't love that? Well, that's it for this week. Join us again next week when it will be time for another journal club or perhaps a trip around the world in 80 plagues. Really, who knows? That's why you listen, right? So, Thanks for joining once again. Th- special thanks to our guest Rafael De Giorgio and as always, happy travels.
2: Thank you. Happy guys. travels.